Good morning, friends. Today's message is titled, Be Careful What Question You Ask Jesus. It comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Let me start with this. One On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, many translations call the man who asked the question a lawyer, an expert in the law. And in Jesus' day, a lawyer was someone who knew the Old Testament, was trained in theology, and was pretty gifted in debate. The religious leaders probably sent him to trap Jesus into saying something foolish. When he stood up, he asked a very important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted to know how to get to heaven. This is the ultimate question of the human heart. I mean, all religions offer some kind of answer. So what will Jesus say? Well, to the lawyer's chagrin, he answers a question with a question. I said, you know the Bible backwards and forwards. What does it say? And the lawyer gave the right answer. If you want to go to heaven, you have got to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And while you're at it, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that was not only the right answer. It was also a quotation of two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Well, Jesus, of course, compliments the man. You've answered rightly. That's good. I mean, knowledge is indeed the first step on the road to heaven. But then Jesus threw him a curveball when he said, Do this and you will live. Now, was Jesus teaching salvation by works? No, not at all. He was merely pointing out that if you could genuinely love God and love others perfectly, you would have eternal life. I mean, after all, God demands perfection. That means loving God always, every second of every day, with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, never deviating from that from the moment you were born until your final breath. That also means loving other people perfectly all the time. That is God's standard, perfection or nothing. Jesus is really telling the man, you want to go to heaven? Great, be perfect and you'll make it. But no one can do this. I mean, we're all sinners and God does not grade on a curve. That's why we need the gospel. So now the lawyer is starting to sweat bullets. And I'm sure he begin, he's beginning to regret ever saying anything. It's kind of like raising your hand to ask a question in class and then having the teacher make you look like a fool. I mean, Jesus has turned this fellow into a pretzel and he's done it in only 21 words. Not bad. Verse 29 says that the lawyer wanted to justify himself. That means Jesus had painted him into a corner and now he wants out. He knew he loved God, but what about that loving my neighbor part? So he asks one further question. Who is my neighbor? Now, at this point, I don't think he is really sincere. It's kind of like asking what the definition of is is. I mean, in truth, the lawyer already had his own answer to the question. <clears throat> I mean, he read the command this way. Love your Jewish neighbor as yourself. See, his definition excluded Samaritans and Gentiles. He could be a neighbor to other Jews and no one else. He wants a definition so he will know who he has to help and who he can ignore. 
He wants Jesus to draw a circle. He will gladly love everyone in that circle, but he doesn't want to be bothered with anybody outside the circle. Well, Jesus draws him a circle. And guess what? It's a lot bigger than he bargained for. See, when you say, tell me who I have to love, he says, you're really saying, tell me who I don't have to love. See, the lawyer wanted a loophole, a legal limit on who he had to love. Jesus is about to explode this loophole and blow his mind at the same time. Now, Jesus does not directly answer the question, and he does not quote the Greek to try to explain the word neighbor and how that word is used in the Bible. He does not offer a dissertation on the derivation from ancient languages. He simply tells a story. But boy, what a story he tells. It's a little masterpiece, and we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra, any extra expense you may have. Now, friends, even though we call this a parable, I think it's based on a true story. I mean, there, there's nothing here that could not have happened in real life. It begins with a certain man who was journeying from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho. Probably a Jew, but his nationality doesn't really matter. I mean, not a word is said about his background or his station in life or how much money he has or his occupation or family status, because none of it matters. He was just a human being in trouble, and that was enough. Now, geography helps us understand this story. Jesus said the man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is in the mountains, and Jericho is in the arid plains by the Jordan River, not far from the Dead Sea. I mean, the Romans had built a a rather narrow, winding road that snaked its way through these mountains, and the road was and is in many ways still very desolate. Well, in the 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, the road descends 3,000 feet in elevation, and locals call it the Bloody Way because of robbers who found ample hiding places from which they could attack unsuspecting travelers. It was what you'd call a thieves' paradise, and this certain man, traveling alone, fell victim to some pretty bad dudes. Evidently, they waited until he came into view, then jumped him, beat him, stripped him, robbed him, and left him for dead. Unfortunately, the robbers forgot to hang a sign around his neck that read, Neighbor, (laughs) or maybe they stole that too. Well, eventually a priest came by who was on his way home to Jericho after fulfilling his duties at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jericho was a priestly city, and we can imagine that he was in a hurry to get home to see his family. Jesus said that the priest saw the beaten man lying on the side of the road, looking probably more dead than alive, and seeing him, he deliberately passed by on the other side. I imagine he felt sorry for the man, but whatever sorrow he felt must have been overcome by a sense of caution and maybe revulsion. So he continued without stopping to help. But soon a second man came by, a Levite, which means he was a member of the tribe of Levi. Now, Levites were like lay priests who helped in the temple service. 
The text suggests that he was both better and worse than the priest. When he saw the man lying on the road beaten half to death, he went over to at least to have a closer look. Now, that was the better part. Perhaps he decided well, there was nothing he could do, so he too went on to the other side of the road and continued on his way. But that was the worst part. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment to comment that the priests and Levites were highly respected men. And because of their education, they knew the law of God and were able to teach it to the people. They were true religious leaders of their day. And yet, they both passed by. Now, the parable doesn't tell us why they didn't stop or help this man. Maybe it doesn't really matter. After all, we all have our excuses when we do not want to do something. But you know what an excuse is, don't you? As someone said, it is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Well, I have some seemingly legitimate excuses these guys could have offered. I mean, like, I'm too busy to stop. I'm already late. I don't know him. It might be a trap of some kind. Well, my doctor said theology. I'm not a medical doctor. He's probably already dead. Or, you know, I've been serving God all week and I'm tired. Or I tried to help somebody once before and it just really went south very quick. Uh, I'm wearing my temple garments and I can't get them dirty. Or uh, when I get to Jericho, I'll call 911 and have them send help. But whatever. Here's the irony of the story. Both men are truly and deeply religious. And if you ask them, do you love God? They would answer, well, of course we do. And they would have meant it. And on one level, at least, it would have been true. They were men who spent their days worshiping and leading others to worship God. It was against that background that their failures seemed so great. They both have come to God's presence, but somehow God's presence not got through, not got through to him, them. And now we come to the hero, the Samaritan. Well, it's a historical fact that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Jews thought the Samaritans were racial and religious half-breed heretics. The Samaritans thought the Jews were arrogant know-it-alls. And to say the true groups didn't like each other would be putting it mildly. If the poor man by the side of the road had been a Samaritan, the priest and Levite would have said he got what he deserved. It's also fair to comment that the Samaritan has no more reason to stop than the priest or the Levite. He was probably on his way home too. I'm sure he was very busy and tired and eager to see his family. And all the excuses the other two might have had, he might have had as well, but he didn't. The Bible says that when he saw the man, he had pity on him. Now, in the Greek language, it's an, pity is an extraordinarily strong word that originally referred to the inner recesses of the stomach and the bowels. I mean, it's the idea of being deeply moved. And one translation says the Samaritan had compassion on the man by the road. And some of you who know me well know that compassion in the Greek is one of my favorite Greek words, splanknitsomai. just love saying that. It means to feel it in the bowels. Well, years ago, I heard a definition of compassion that I've never quite forgotten. It goes this way. Compassion is your hurt in my heart. Your hurt in my heart. You see, it's emotion plus motion. We remember this Samaritan for one reason. He did something. The others passed by, but he stopped and he helped the guy. Jesus doesn't say that the others didn't feel compassion. I mean, maybe they did. But they did not do anything. I mean, compassion means nothing unless it moves us to action. So he bandaged the guy's wounds, poured on olive oil, which was a kind of a Middle Eastern form of simple first aid. He put the man on his own donkey, which meant the Samaritan had to walk while this guy rode. 
He took him to an inn for travelers, paid for the room, spent the night there, gave the innkeeper two silver coins. That's roughly two days' wages in the first century. He even promised to come back and take care of any extra expenses. Now, we can summarize it this way. His help was, pro- his help was prompt, thorough, generous, sensible, self-denying to his own discomfort and at his own expense. In him, we see the attentive look, compassionate heart, the helping hand, the willing foot, and the open purse. Now, here's the kicker in the story. The two men who should have shown compassion did not, and the one who would not have been expected to did. The religious leaders knew the truth. They did nothing. The Samaritan was an outcast, but he knew the truth, and his compassion moved into action. So what we got here is Jesus turns the tables upside down. Now, at this point, we have to ask, what's the application of this story? Well, Jesus goes on in, in, in Luke chapter 10. He said, now, which one of these three, he's not talking to the Lord, which of these three people do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So now we kind of get to the end of the story. And in the beginning, the lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? And what he was really wanting was a definition and a limitation. But Jesus changes the question, not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? And you know something, friends? That's a world of difference here. To ask who is my neighbor is to focus on what claim others have on my time and energy and resources. To ask whose neighbor am I is to focus on what I owe to the suffering people all around me. Now, notice how the lawyer answers Jesus. The true neighbor was the one who had mercy on him. See, he is so prejudiced that he will not even use the word Samaritan. It's like a dirty word to him. Jesus' application is simple and to the point. Go and do likewise. Well, let's get back to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Well, in light of this story, we can answer the question this way. My neighbor is anyone in need whose path I cross, whose need I am able to meet. See, in that light, you never know when you will run into a neighbor because you find neighbors everywhere you go. John Wesley liked to say, the world is my parish. Well, with this story, Jesus is teaching us to say, you know, the world is my neighborhood. So do not say, well, do more when I know more. No, you know too much already. Act on what you know and God will bless you. Do not say, if I'm ever going, to, going down a lonely road and happen to see a dying man, I'll stop and help him. No, this man is all around us. I mean, this man is young or old or male or female or rich or poor or black or white or Asian or Hispanic, a child, a beggar, a divorcee, a cancer victim, an AIDS patient, single parent, lonely widow, a new arrival from another country. They don't look or act or sound like us, but is there any way that God has put him in your path? You cannot avoid him. What will you do? Will you walk by, start with the need that is near you, and God will give you grace? You see, friends, your religion is empty if it does not compel you to reach out to those who are hurting, whose path you cross. Not long ago, I read about a man who was standing near a hole that had been dug as part of a large excavation. A number of workers were in the hole removing dirt when the walls collapsed around them, and rescuers began running from everywhere, but the man just stood there and watched. And suddenly, a woman called out from a nearby house, Jim, your brother is down there. And instantly, he stripped off his coat and began digging for dear life. Now, why? See, his brother was in mortal danger, and he had to get him out. So, friends, who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? Well, my brother is anyone in danger, anyone in need, anyone in pain, anyone in trouble. 
you know, just look around. I mean, your brother is sick. Your brother is dying. Your brother's lost his job or is homeless or is lost or discouraged or lies beaten and wounded. I mean, don't walk by on the other side. Will you abandon your brother? Will you leave him to die? Now, all around us, men and women are dying. We have plenty of priests and a truckload of Levites. The question is, where are the good Samaritans? Now, this week, all of us are going to walk the Jericho Road. Sooner or later, we are bound to meet someone in need. Don't ask, who is that man and how did he get there? Don't ask, is this a friend or an enemy? Don't ask, do I know this person? Don't ask, what did they do to deserve this? Don't ask, is he of my religion? Is he my color? Is he my family, my tribe, my background, my language, my people? Friends, if he is in need and you can help him, he is your neighbor. Will you be his neighbor? Once upon a time, a man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A sensitive person came along and said, I feel for you down there. A practical person came along and said, I knew you were going to fall in sooner or later. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into a pit. A mathematician calculated how far he fell. A news reporter wanted an exclusive story on the pit, and an IRS agent asked if he was paying taxes on the pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A mystic said, just imagine that you're not in a pit. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. See, finally in this story, we see the gospel of Jesus. I mean, ever since Eden, the human race has been on a journey away from Jerusalem. We have been going down, down, down into the Jericho Valley. And one day we were attacked by Satan and left for dead. He robbed us of our dignity, stripped us of our righteousness, and along came the good Samaritan himself, Jesus. He bound our wounds, carried us to safety, paid our debt, and guaranteed our future. He has shown mercy to us when we were left dead by the side of the road. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan. So here's a message for those who are still lying up by the road, wounded and bleeding and forgotten and abandoned. This is for those who feel hopeless and helpless. This is for those who have been destroyed by sin. Jesus comes. Jesus came to help you. Would you not give him your heart? Would you not love him and trust him and serve him? Will you not believe in him? See, the good Samaritan comes to save you. Will you not come to him and trust him as Lord and Savior? I close with this word to those he has rescued. And I count myself in this group. Look to your master and recall what he did for you. Gaze upon the one who left heaven for you. Remember that when everyone else passed by, Jesus stopped to save you. Then in his name and in his power and with his strength and for his glory, go and do likewise. And yes, the Lord will be with you. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.